This party started in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we're working our way through some of the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and uh, we, we started last week uh, looking at the parable of the soils. It's oftentimes called the parable of the sower, but it's not about the sower. It's really about the, about the uh, soils. And, and today we want to look at the next parable which is often called the parable of the wheats, the wheat and the tares, for you King Jamers, tares. But if you grew up farming, you probably didn't use the word tares. You may have used the word weeds, something like that. So we're going to look at that. Page 862 of your pew Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. We will read verses 24 to 29 and then skip down to verse 36 to 43. The Apostle Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow seed, good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather, gather them? I said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. We ask as always, you open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we would receive your word, believe it, obey it, be transformed by it. May we lift your name up above the heavens, for you are worthy. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I know it's hidden somewhere in our basement, which means I'll never find it until maybe we move again. But nevertheless, there is a picture of me from my freshman year of high school. It is of me with my arm wrapped around a beautiful young woman. No, it's not my wife. It's Britney Spears, actually. There it is. Young 15-year-old wrapped around Britney Spears. I remember and that picture was taken. It's a real picture uh, taken on Polaroid for you young people. Google it. And, and uh, you, you, you can still buy those, by the way. There are many. What's the point of that? But, but I, I remember I came back to school the next day after meeting Mrs. Spears, and I, I put it up in the, in the locker, and no one could believe that I had met Britney Spears. I said, I've got a picture to prove it. Here is me with my arm wrapped around Mrs. Spears, which means for a brief moment in time, I had a chance to be her second husband. Had a chance. It was brief, but I had to have that chance there. Actually, it was, it was taken at a concert. 
my, my parents got me these tickets. There's a story behind. It was sort of a joke. They got me the tickets, but I got them nonetheless. Me and two of my buddies and my brother had to drive. We were just freshmen. So we, we went to the concert. It was at that concert. I've told you this before that Britney Spears actually did wave at me in the middle of the concert. And I will take that to my grave. that She actually did wave at me. But no one could believe I'd met the princess of pop. I said, there's all the evidence you need right there. There's me, my arm wrapped around Britney Spears. The problem with that is if you looked a little closer at the picture, you'll notice that it wasn't the real Spear Britney. It was rather a life-size cardboard cutout of Britney Spears. You see, at this concert, it was sponsored by the Got Milk campaign. You remember the, the, the magazine pictures and everything uh, where they'd have the, the milk mustache and, and holding a glass saying Got Milk, right? And so uh, they had sponsored this, this tour with LFO and some other person I don't remember. Um, LFO, by the way, likes Abercrombie and Fitch. And uh, for the two of you who may get that joke. But... Uh, uh, as part of the, the campaign, they had got milk everywhere, all over the place. And one of the parts was you can come take a picture with the cardboard cutout of Britney Spears, and you could put on a, a milk mustache yourself because she had one. So there's me, armed wrapped around Mrs. Spears. And to everyone from a distance, it looked real. No one could believe that I got to meet the real Britney Spears. But as you got a little closer to it, the reality hits. It looked real, but it wasn't real. Wouldn't you say that's the same thing for a lot of people in our churches right now? Wouldn't you say that's the same thing about a lot of people who claim allegiance to Christ right now? A lot of people who claim to be religious. A lot of people who claim to be spiritual. From a distance, they may look the part, sound the part, talk the part. But in truth, it's as real as that picture I have with Britney Spears. That's the warning Jesus has here. And you'll notice that between the parable we saw last week, the parable of the soils, and this parable we see, the parable of the seeds, we, we see a lot of similarities. Both are agricultural parables, which makes sense given the context. The, you wouldn't give a parable like this if you were in the heart of New York City. No one would know what, what ground is in, in, in the downtown New York City. But in this context where everyone works in the fields essentially, it makes complete sense why most of these fit in agriculture cultural context. The first involved a sower, uh, as does this one. They both involve a field and seed and soil. But the difference is essentially, what is the question being asked here? Last week, we saw that with the parable of soils, the question is, which soil are you? Are you the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the pathway, or are you the good soil? This week, we see the question of which seed are you? In this parable, the problem isn't with the soil. In fact, you, you see in the parable itself when the servants come to, to the master and say, did you sow in good soil? So the question isn't what kind of soil the seed is being sown in, but it's about the seed itself. So verses 24 to 30, we, we see the message. Now, uh, Jesus begins this with yet another uh, parable of the kingdom. So the purpose of the parable is to illustrate the kingdom. And, and he tells the story. Uh, there was a farmer who went out to sow in good soil uh, uh, wheat, right? And that's it. And, and so as he sows it, right, it gets good roots. It comes up. There you go. The problem is, is that in the middle of the night, while he's asleep, um, practicing social distancing, no doubt, the, the enemy comes in and the enemy sows bad seed. 
Now, in, specifically, he is sowing what's called darnel. Darnel is a poisonous weed that grows along wheat and, in fact, looks a lot like it. You can Google this and you can compare wheat and darnel. You can't really tell until, until, until the, the harvest the, the difference, but, but as they grow, they look almost exactly the same. Now, such sabotaging at this time was common, so much so that doing this was against Roman and Jewish law. And this explains why in the parable, the enemy of the farmer does it. This isn't just some, some redneck teenagers who, who don't have anything else to do with their lives. No, this is an enemy. This is a criminal act under Roman law. And their, their similarity meant that if you were tried to uproot the Darnell, you would run the risk of uprooting the wheat that you actually uh, uh, planted. So, uh, so in verse 30, you see there that, that uh, as it say there, uh, the farmer says, let both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell uh, the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them to bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. This is very common. So you can only tell the difference at harvest time. And so when you go to gather, then the separation will come, right? And that's the story. Don't you feel better, right? I mean, it's sort of like what we saw last week where Jesus tells a story about a, a, a sower went out to sow some seeds. Some landed on this ground, some landed on that ground, some landed on this other ground. The end, go home, right? And you're like, okay, that wasn't even a good story, Right? Uh, I mean, there's, there's no climax to the story, right? No one finds themselves in the end, right? What, what, what a terrible story. Same thing here. Jesus tells a story like, hey, yeah, I heard a story once about a dude went out and sowed some, some weed. And another dude came in in his, his farm and sowed weeds. Wasn't that terrible? Okay, y'all go home, have a great Sunday, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it kind of, kind of, like, tell me something else. So it isn't until later then, starting in verse 36, that we, we, we see the meaning of the parable. And the great thing about this parable is that Jesus uh, tells us everything about this parable. You, you do not need a, a, a degree in cemetery to figure out what this parable is all about. You see it there, that verse 37, the, the sower equals Jesus, the son of man. Well, write that off, check, done, right? Which means any other interpretation that misses that, you're not reading, okay? I mean, just the sower here, in this context, I don't think that fit for the previous parable, but in this, in this parable equals the Son of Man. In verse 38 and 39, we see that the field represents the world. Notice here that it doesn't represent the church. It represents the world. And that these parables of the kingdom, these are parables of the kingdom. Thus, thus we have to interpret them in, in a lot of that context. The church is, is not, the true church is not made up of wheat and weeds. The true church is made up of wheat. This is why Baptists believe in what we call regenerate church membership. It's why we as Baptists only baptize believers. Because the thinking is, is that for one, only believers are baptized. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Uh, but membership is to say, are you a confessing and believing believer in Christ? Because that is what the church is. It doesn't mean we get it 100% right. Certainly not. But our, our belief in church membership, certainly of, of the kingdom of God, is wheat. With that said, we, we see the field equals the world. The good seed equals the sons of the kingdom. So what you have here is Jesus is sowing seed throughout the world. And what Jesus sows is wheat. Thus, what the gospel produces is good fruit. What it produces 
is disciples because Jesus never fails. When the gospel is sown and Jesus and his spirit sows it, what it produces is wheat. So that's the image. You got Jesus out there sowing good seed in good soil, producing good fruit, right? That's the image here. And he's doing it in the world. The weeds, on the other hand, represent the sons of the evil one. So you have the sons of the kingdom are, are the, are, are, is the wheat, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. That is the sons of Satan. Uh, the enemy there is the devil, identified force. The harvest represents the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So you can see what the imagery is here. Jesus is sowing seed in the world, and out of that comes true believers who, who, who are good seed, who produce good fruit, right? And that's how you know them, by the fruit they produce. The problem is, is that in that same world where Christ is sowing, the enemy comes and sows his seed. And at times they look exactly the same. It would be nice if they grew up to be dandelions. You're thinking, I don't know much about grass, but I do know dandelions are bad, right? And I'm sure there's other weeds that are obvious to catch, but I do know that's a dandelion, despite what your four-year-old may try to tell you. And what happens at the end is a separation on the day of harvest at judgment between the wheat on the one hand and the weeds on the other. And that's his point in verses 40 to 43. Jesus and his angels will gather everyone together, separate the good seed from the bad seed, the wheat and the darnel, the sheep and the goats, right? Whatever imagery you want, the righteous will be rewarded, the wicked will be condemned. And so you, you, I think the point of the, the parable is, is pretty straightforward then, right? I, I don't think you, you, you need a fancy degree or anything, as we said, to understand it. But let us consider just how bizarre of a parable this would have been in its original context. This is not how Jews view the world. They didn't understand two comings of the Messiah. They believed that when the Messiah came, evil would then be judged. Righteous Israel would then be the center of the world. So what they're wanting from Jesus is not parables. What they're wanting from Jesus is to call down fire from heaven and consume the Romans, consume all the bad people so that all the good people get all the good land, right? That's what they want from Messiah. They're wanting the day of the Lord. They're wanting the law to become the law, the law of Moses to become the law of the land. But Jesus is describing something very different in these parables. These are kingdom parables. He argues here there will be a period in which wheat and weeds, true and false believers, will grow side by side in the world. And the final determination of who are the sons of God and sons of Satan will be made at the day of judgment. So what we have here is the church, true wheat, planted in a world full of weeds. The Lord sows, Satan sows. So in the mystery of the kingdom of God, wheat is commingled with weeds. Like Judas among the twelve. Like Ananias and Sapphira among the early church, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders claiming to be righteous, looking as if they were righteous, but in fact were poisonous. Wheat and weeds grow together. Some will in the end resemble Christ. Others will resemble Satan. 
John MacArthur describes it this way, quote, we breathe the same air, we eat the same food, we drive the same highways, we live in the same neighborhoods, we work at the same factories, we go to the same schools, we visit the same doctors, we entertain ourselves with the same entertainment, we're under the same sky, we enjoy the same warm sun, we breathe the same air, and ju the just and the unjust are reigned upon in this era because it's all co-mingled until the end. And let us just pause here and consider that this is the problem with tribalism. Dear America, hear me. This is a problem with tribalism. It's, it's, it's too easy to buy into it because it oversimplifies the world in which we live in. Republicans are good. Republicans are bad. Democrats are good. Democrats are bad. Chevy drivers are good. Chevy drivers are bad. Four drivers are good. Four drivers are bad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we all know which side of the side he's on. Leftists, right-wingers, city folk, farmers, blue-collar, white-collar, white, black, educated, progressive, conservative, rich, poor, religious, secular. Our society is divided by these tribes. And what we do is we say, look, because I'm part of this tribe, whatever tribe it might be, I must be the good guy. There's no Western. I wear a white hat, right? And I walk around real funny and I talk right, protecting the city. All everyone else that ain't in my tribe are black hat people. And they got to go. They got to go. Whatever it takes, they got to go. And the problem with tribalism is, is it divides us into, into little tribes. Rather than see ourselves as more globally as, as Americans or as humans, we see each other in our little exclusive tribes. But the gospel suggests otherwise. Tribalism judges others by their identity group or by their outward appearance. Yes, there are bad rich people in the world. There are bad leftists in the world. But there are bad conservatives in the world. There are some bad poor people in the world. There are some bad Chevy drivers in the world. Some bad Ford drivers in the world. But you know what? Some good ones too. Some good ones. You can be rich and good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. You can be Democrat, Republican. You can vote left or right. You can do whatever. The issue isn't your identity group, your tribal group, but, but the difference between righteous and unrighteous. True worship, false worship. Let's be honest. We Christians are not believing this gospel right now. Have you turned on the news over the last... Since March 8th, at least, of last year, we're buying into this sort of simplified tribalism because it convinces us that my tribe, naturally, is the good guy. Their tribe has to be the bad guy. And here comes Jesus, and he speaks of weeds and weeds. You see, the Jews were tribal, weren't they? They were the good people. Everyone else was bad people. Oh, you can't go walk through Samaria. They're bad people. You may catch some of that badness from them. Ugh. You can go among the Gentiles, the bad people. Any of this sound familiar? Oh, you don't want to go to that school. Oh, you don't want to listen to that politician. You don't want to watch that news network. You want to go to that website. Won't you join this social media group? Won't you try this program? Oh, my friends are, are, are reading these sort of books. Any this sound familiar, America? American Evangelical, any of this sound familiar? But Jesus shows that indeed there were good Jews. Many of them are among his own disciples. He also shows there's some bad Jews. Many were there listening to every word he said. 
There's some practical points I think we need to make in this text. The first is, it is dangerous to presume wheat. It is dangerous to presume wheat. Can I tell you that one of the, the, the largest unreached people groups in the world is right here in the United States of America. As defined by the International Mission Board and North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest unreached people groups in all the world is right here in the United States of America. In fact, it's an entire state. It's not Massachusetts. It's not California. It's not New York. It's not Portland, Oregon. It's not Washington, D.C. I mean, they're on the list, I'm sure. It's actually Utah. The reason we never consider the spiritual darkness of Utah, let's be honest, they vote Republican. They're more conservative than you and I are. Yet when you enter into that mission field, what is it you find? Yes, there's a lot of religious righteous, righteousness all over the place rooted in a false gospel. You go into Salt Lake City, you know what you'll find? A lot of secular progressivism, much of it coming out of that religious experience. One of the most unreached people groups in all the world is Utah. But the reason we don't think that is because we've assumed if you vote this way, if your families look like this, if you act like this, if you talk like this, and you treat your elders with respect, you must therefore be good with Jesus. And it's a lie. It's easy for us to confuse policy with theology, morality with righteousness. But when we presume someone must redeem based on nothing more than oppressions, then we are sowing weeds. You know, there's going to be a whole lot of pro-life Americans in hell who never heard the gospel because American evangelicals made false assumptions. Secondly, it is fallacious to preach a non-gospel to weeds. American evangelicalism has a history of trying to win the world by worldly means. And then wonder how is it that we're the ones that look like the world in the end. I used to work at a Christian bookstore, spent five years doing it, two different stints. Family Christian stores, they can't do anything to me now. They're, they're bankrupt. But one of the things that I got into family up in Florence Store, 132 when I was in high school, was because I loved Christian music, particularly Christian rock music. In fact, I am who I am today in many ways because of certain bands, DC Talk and, and, and some others. So I became a music manager when I was a teenager, played an important role in the store. And, and one of the things that, that I did in high school and even in middle school and after that was I was convinced all my lost friends, if I could get them to try Christian rock, they would like Christianity. So I'd tell them, you need to listen to Pillar instead of uh, Limp Biscuit, P.O.D. instead of Papa Roach. You got to listen to Third Day instead of Nickelback, Trip Lee instead of 50 Cent, right? That's 50 cents for, for, for you you uninitiated. Jump five instead of Hanson. That's a funny joke. No one's going to get it. But if they like these bands, they'll like their message and they'll like my Jesus. Did it work? How many people you think got saved because they, they, they really started to enjoy Project 86 and Thousand Foot Crutch? No one. No one did. In other words, what I did was I utilized worldly means to call the world out of the world. I wonder why it didn't work. 
Because it wasn't just me. We work at the store like that. What you find is a tendency that whatever the world considered cool, we could Christianize it. One of my favorite examples of this was, uh, you remember Abercrombie and Fitch, thanks to LFO, uh, was, was really big. And everyone, if, if, you were, if you were cool, you wore Abercrombie and Fitch. I don't know why, but, but whatever. Okay? I was a jock. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I wore jerseys. You know? but, uh, uh, but, but you were cool if you wore Abercrombie and Fitch. So what do we do at the store? We showed shirts that said a breadcrumb and fish. See? See? It took you all, some of you all, a second. Yeah, it's, it's a breadcrumb and fish. Even had a Bible verse on it, John 6. What did Jesus bring? Yeah, yeah a breadcrumb and fish. We also sold video games at the store. My favorite? Left Behind. All your main characters just in the first scene, gone, right? I mean, just, just gone. And so you're roaming the earth in the end time. You can love Left Behind all you want to. It was a weird game. I don't know. I don't, Sorry, it was bizarre. We had a self-help section, an exercising section, cookbooks, and all the things you'd find everywhere else, except now they had Bible verses. Our theology section was about three books before Easter. But our exercise section, you could get lost in it. Which one do, I, which one do you think is a better prayer? This guy or this gal? I don't know. But Christian exercising, what are we trying to do here? We're sowing weeds, hoping that weeds will magically turn the weeds. You see, what weeds need is a true gospel, not a diluted version of it. And one other point needs to be made in terms of this text. It would be inaccurate for us to emphasize the work of Satan here, the sower's enemy in this narrative. It is false to presume the farmer somehow loses or fails in this narrative. He doesn't. In the parable, the enemy fails to ruin the farmer's crop. The same amount of wheat he planted is the same amount of wheat he harvests in the end. The wheat does not stop the weeds. This is not about unconversion. This is about true conversions. And how many in our conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-thumping churches have within their midst right now, this Sunday morning, the falsely converted? So then what is the moral of the story? If in the first parable we saw what soil are you, I think the second uh, parable we see the question, which seed are you? Is it the gospel you have received or a perversion of it? Can I give you five simple, common perversions of the gospel? First, common one is legalism. Legalism. When you turn Christianity into rule-keeping, it's got to look like this. You've got to talk like this. You, you, everything's got to be a certain way based on tradition or, or, or upbringing or whatever it might be. Legalism. The second is the opposite and equally common in our age today, and that is libertarianism. The theological term is antinomianism. It means against the law. The idea is that, well, the more I sin, the more God can show his grace. Ain't God awesome? I can do whatever I want. By the way, I think what we've seen, particularly in the South, is the swing between legalism when I was young and libertarianism now that I'm adults. And guess what happens in the culture? We went from a legalistic culture to now a libertarian culture. Anything goes, and, and I want the world to like me, not think I'm, 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 I'm off or anything, so, so i got to go along with it. The third false or perversion go, perverted gospel is that of the social gospel. That's technically a, a technical term from the 19th and early 20th centuries, a movement called the social gospel. 
what it, what it teaches is the gospel is exclusively about the here and now. Uh, today we may use the term social justice. I don't like that term because the word social isn't attached to justice in the Bible. I prefer the term justice. And those things are good. Justice is good. The problem comes whenever we make the gospel facts. So we turn to politics for answers. We, we turn to humanitarian aid as salvation. Yes, when we have our eyes on Jesus, we will not overlook the poor, the needy, the hurting, the sick, the lonely, the lost. But when that becomes our primary and only message, we've perverted the gospel. What people need before a drink of water is to have their thirst quenched in Jesus. Fourthly, there is ritualism, ceremonialism. I remember I was trying to explain the, why Baptist churches have white walls. But you can go around other traditions, which you find is a lot more art. And I think there's something good. I think there's something God-given in art. Of course, I married an art major, so I have to say that. But, um, but why is it that Baptists are, are, are so bland, obviously, you know, with, with the way we, we decorate? Um, that one would probably hurt someone's feelings. That's okay. And the reason is because Baptists went to another extreme when it came to ceremony and ritualism. I was explaining this to a group of Baptists one time, and someone responded like, huh, that's why I feel so close to God in a Catholic church. I said, break right there, okay? <laughs> You're like, I can be critical of Baptists as a Baptist that we need to be more creative, okay? Let's be honest, okay? But do not confuse ceremony, ritual, and aesthetics with spirituality, Jesus is the key to it all. And so we think if we go through the motions, that is sufficient. Well, I got wed after youth camp when I was 16, preacher. That's ceremony. It's ritualism. And then there is a fifth perversion of the gospel I see today. Do I need to explain it? Political ideology. It wasn't long ago when I explained to someone who I didn't vote for. And they assumed that meant I voted for someone else and called into question my faith. Where is that in the Bible? Did it ever cross your mind that no one among the first believers voted for anything? Yet the gospel did not cease to spread and take over the world? Did it ever cross your mind that anyone can occupy a house and the gospel would still save souls? Did it ever cross your mind? But when that becomes our identity, we will sow weeds and weeds and weeds and we'll pervert the true gospel that saves the people we claim we love. So if you add rules to redemption, you pervert the gospel. You subtract righteousness from conversion, you pervert the gospel. If you limit the scope of the gospel to worldly affairs, you pervert it. If you demand ceremony and personal preferences over Christ, you pervert it. If you hope in a system... Hope in a party, hope in policy more than you hope in Christ, you will pervert the only hope for you in this world. Are we quicker to lay down a cross or a flag? Are we sowing wheat? Are we sowing weeds? Are we weeds? Or are we weeds? And unfortunately, I'm afraid there are a lot of weeds in our churches today. By church, I, I don't mean the, the body of regenerate believers we talked about earlier, but the local congregation. 
Imagine what it would look like today if every person who walked the aisle, every person that went swimming in the baptistry, every person that we share communion with, every person across this land was in fact wheat. How many people would be here right now? How many people start stop confusing faith with policy? How many would avoid moralism in the favor of righteousness? How, how many would make their home a priority more than their career? How many would care more about character than power, love over opportunity, service over convenience? How different the church would be. So the question is, which seed are you? Are you weeds? Or are you weeds? Are you heading towards destruction or blessing at the harvest? And one last thing in application of this text. Are we sowing in the world and leaving the rest to a sovereign God? May we decide in the year 2021 if we as Christians will be a sowing people or a divisive people. I'll tell you which one is driven by a wheat gospel. Which one is driven by a weed gospel. If we are a sowing people, we will share our faith, live by our faith, grow in the gospel, exhort in the gospel, and pray for one another. But all too often what the church sows is weeds, not wheat. When we dumb down the gospel, we add to the gospel, we ignore the gospel, we hide the gospel, and we reject the gospel, our words and our deeds and our actions. The problem of this, of this scene is not with the sower or even what he sows. What he sows is good seed and good soil. The problem is when the enemy comes and tells us lies and tells us to re- redefine our faith or to be silent about our faith. And when we do that, we're sowing weeds. Sort of the first kingdom parables, Jesus asked, what soul are you? The second one similarly is, what seed are you? So maybe you're here today and still thinking, maybe, maybe that did land on the rocky soil. Maybe it's been on the pathway all this time. Or maybe you're here this morning and you think, the truth is, I've, I've been playing a part, masquerading as one thing, but I've, but I've never truly embraced the real thing. What seed are you? You see, what separates the wheat from the weeds is not religion, but genuine fruit that comes from genuine repentance before a holy and righteous Savior. And on that day, will our church, will you, will I be well represented? Or will we be surprised by how many weeds were among us? Which seed are you? What are you going to do about it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.